I think the fact that only 30% of 18 to 25 year olds are living at home right now is actually kind of a victory. All of them have either graduated college or started a career in a pandemic. And then at the same time, the cost of living is going up at unprecedented levels. So I think this is not a failure to launch. I think this is kind of impressive. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, we've got a packed schedule today. Corey, where are we going to start? On today's show, the newest COVID variant appears to be the most transmissible yet, which doesn't seem to be worrying all that many people. We'll talk about the shifting public perception of the pandemic. A state senator hits Congresswoman AOC for not being home enough, but Gen Z says they're home all the time. We'll talk about how many Zoomers live with their parents and whether or not that matters. How does the pace of our justice system affect crime rates? We'll discuss a new story on that connection. And the January 6th committee is resting their case for a few months. We'll take a look back at their mid-season finale. But first things first, Amazon acquiring healthcare provider One Medical. It's kind of like a Formula One driver buying an ambulance. You know, the guy can drive, but you're not really sure if he's used to maneuvering that the company has made no secret of its ambition to get into healthcare, and now they're making a four billion dollar move in that direction. Now, Ravi, what should we make of this latest addition to the ever expanding one stop shop of Jeff Bezos? I think it's not super surprising. Healthcare is a four trillion dollar industry in the United States, and our healthcare system is really screwed up. You know, U.S. spends more on healthcare than any other rich country, yet we, you know, perform poorly, relatively speaking, on key health measures like life expectancy, preventable hospital admissions, maternal mortality. So you both have a problem to solve and a lot of money for those who can solve this. And then you've got people at all levels of income who are unhappy with their experience. And what Amazon is going after here are the higher income people first, you know, and this is kind of what they call concierge medicine. There are certain companies like One Medical and Forward that have been offering this sort of expanded experience on top of your traditional, uh, you know, primary care provider. And so you pay a little bit more and you get access to all sorts of I would say bells and whistles on top of the current system. Now, how innovative they are, we will talk about, but this is a $3.9 billion acquisition. Just to put it in relative terms, the Whole Foods acquisition was $13.7 billion. So this is a major acquisition for Amazon. And you know this is not the first time they've gone into healthcare. So they acquired a mail order pharmacy uh, called PillPack. Uh, they also uh, started Amazon Care, which is a primary care and telehealth uh, service for their own employees. They had partnered with J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway to start something called Haven, uh, which was a failed effort to provide like a comprehensive service to solve a lot of the, the major issues in our healthcare system that was run by the New Yorker writer and physician Atul Gawande. And that failed for a number of reasons. And so this is, you know, their latest foray into this space. It makes some sense. But I think the question is, how fast are they going to scale? And so just to give a sense of what this acquisition actually comprises of, they have physical spaces that are um, like you see in New York, often those like very mod dentist office or or uh, vet clinics that are aesthetically pleasing. And it's kind of like new age of medicine. Uh, they have physical spaces, 180 offices that have started in about a dozen more urban markets. They work with a lot of employers. So employees are basically insured through them, but there's a membership cost, which means that it's pretty easy potentially to tack on to a prime membership as like an additional tier. 
Um, and another thing that's really important about their business model is that they have like an innovative healthcare software. So they're keeping their own records. They have this new kind of more up-to-date way of keeping track of patient records. And they have about 800,000 patients that they're um, serving at the moment. But it looks like Amazon is um, pretty blatant about their intent to disrupt healthcare. And as you said, like even with the Amazon Halo little watch that they had, they're they're trying to get as involved in our our health and well-being as possible. Well, to build on that, you know, Amazon now has access to just an unbelievable amount of data. So they have Amazon Web Services, which is so many of the websites that we visit. And you wouldn't even know that we're using Amazon when we're on a lot of these sites. They have their online stores, obviously. They have in-person grocery stores through Whole Foods. They have pharmacies. And now they have our medical information. Now, obviously, HIPAA, you know, the federal law protects our data. Uh, in certain ways when it's within the healthcare system. But, you know, there obviously are a lot of privacy concerns or just sheer questions around the enormity of the power that Amazon is now wielding here. Yeah, I just think it's interesting I can get healthcare with my Amazon Prime account now. Um, it's interesting to see Amazon going in so many different directions here because normally like big companies like Google or Meta, when they acquire different companies, they're acquiring companies that are kind of near their industry and in their realm. But with Amazon, you know, they're getting grocery stores, they're getting movie studios, and now they're getting healthcare providers. And then you got Bezos himself, who technically owns the Washington Post through his holding company. And he's also- And Blue Origin. And Blue Origin going to space, all these random things. At what point does any of this become uh, antitrust territory for Amazon? Well, in a weird way, if it's diverse territory, in many ways, it's better for you than consolidating yeah, the same in industry. industry yeah. uh, the Where you get into antitrust territory, if, if there's a diverse offering, is if you're using your foothold in one area to then consolidate another. So for instance, using uh, the big case being having windows and then uh you know incentivizing slash pushing internet explorer at the expense of netscape yeah was the kind of example of like sort of horizontal antitrust concerns but i think the big question here is going to be what does this mean for one medical and for uh, consumers of healthcare in this country right now because there are all sorts of debates around what is the problem with healthcare in America right now. And I think the most convincing case that I've heard is uh, Stephen Brill, who is a another New Yorker writer and, and longtime journalist, wrote this book called The Bitter Pill years ago. That was this huge tome, like this huge book that basically dissected the healthcare system and to me had a very surprising conclusion, which is contrary to popular belief, the biggest villains are not the uh, ph pharmaceutical companies or the insurance companies, it's the hospital corporations because they're the people with the worst incentives possible to charge as much as possible because they're dealing directly with the insurance companies and billing whatever the heck they want. Yeah. And we as consumers often get our healthcare through employers. So we're not engaging in traditional consumer driven, you know, price dropping behavior, like, mm -hmm. you know, shopping around. Usually if you have to go to the emergency room, you don't have a lot of leverage to negotiate a different price, nor do yeah. you even care because that's going to the insurance company that your employer is paying, not you. And so he talks about how like the biggest innovation, and he argued this years ago, should be in some in some way where we can actually get the insurance companies and the healthcare providers themselves to be the same thing, um, which is actually what Kaiser Permanente and a couple others do. It was a little bit about what Haven was trying to do, the, the Gawande startup. 
Uh, but I think there's also a big question about just how innovative One Medical is. Uh, let's listen to uh, one of their competitors. So this is the CEO of Forward, which is another major sort of concierge medicine service. He went on CNBC to talk about this deal. Let's hear what he had to say. When we look at like the preeminent tech companies of our generation and they say, we're going to come join the fight for healthcare. This is one of the biggest problems of our country. And this is the solve, right? Like we're, we're buying companies where the biggest innovation is their waiting room and nice couches, I get fairly disappointed. You're talking about a company where 15 years into the company, they're talking about hundreds of thousands of subscribers. There's 335 million Americans. What are we going to say? Another 100 years and we're going to cover the state of California? So uh, I've actually used Forward, the service uh, that he provides. And a lot of people say it's very similar to One Medical, which makes his kind of dig at One Medical interesting. I love like the narcissism of small differences in a lot of these companies. But to put a number on it. Uh, Ricky talked about how there's 800,000 patients at one medical. They have 180 clinics, 8,500 businesses. A lot of people think that when Amazon took over Whole Foods, the quality of the uh, consumer experience went down with the scale of it all. Yeah, Just Amazon, totally you know, yeah, they're not, it's not their skill set. So yeah. my worry here is that that one medical scales, but the quality decreases. Uh, and it at least seems like their competitors don't even think there was much innovation to scale in the first place. What we're going to see moving forward and Andreessen Horowitz and, and a bunch of other sort of like, I think, big thinkers in the venture capital world have been arguing that we're going to see an unbundling of healthcare services, which is essentially what forward and one medical uh, represent, meaning like people are going to start to pay for medical services almost like they do streaming services mm, wow. where they're like instead of paying for cable one big bundle which is the metaphorical insurance company mm -hmm. they're going to start to also pay for all right i'm going to go buy my one medical membership i'm going to pay for my blood work from somebody else because mm -hmm. it's better than what my insurance is providing uh you're starting to see this at the higher income levels the question is like is it going to distill down but you're going to see the the unbundling which i talked about but also bundling, which is the case of like the hospital corporations, insurance companies coming together because then the incentives can get better. So I actually think that some of these healthcare companies, uh, especially the insurance companies and healthcare providers who are one-offs are going to face competition from both sides of the spectrum. It's an interesting phenomenon, like looking in the streaming world of how unbundling happens and you have like all these different islands of media and content. And then all of a sudden people are realizing they're paying for like a million different things and then it rebundles and reconfigures in different ways. And now you can get them in groups. And I kind of almost imagine that that might be what happens in healthcare where we all kind of disaggregate. And then we realize, wait, no, it was actually kind of nice to not pay for a million things at once. But I think that's kind of part of the uncomfortable process of the market shifting that we're seeing right now. And it'll be interesting to see if it repeats in the medical space. Well, that's what they learned. You know, if you look at what Amazon learned in Haven, they realized that when they went into markets, they had insufficient market power. There's a really good Harvard Business Review article that we'll link in the show notes about this, where essentially what happened was they weren't big enough because they were largely serving their customers. So they would go in and they tried to negotiate with the hospital corporations uh, and insurance companies to get the right kind of reimbursement rates for some of the services that they were providing and costs when they were sending people to hospitals. And they realized that they didn't have enough people to negotiate the right rates and right kind of environments. But now you can imagine Amazon 
they're now leveraging their customer base, which means that they'll have a lot more leverage in the system. All I know is Bernie Sanders is not going to like any of this one bit. <laughs> Two years plus into the pandemic, COVID-19 still continues to spread throughout the country. Cases have been ticking up thanks to the emergence of a new variant, BA5, which is now the dominant strain affecting Americans. But health officials are split on what to do about it. While a few cities are flirting with the prospect of renewed mask mandates, most of the country is responding with a collective shrug. So, Ricky, how is the nation reacting to this new wave of COVID? The data is getting harder and harder to parse out because people are getting less severe cases and they're not testing when they think they might have it or just not even realizing they have it. But um, what we seem to think is that there's a big wave happening. A Louisiana health officer put it kind of nicely. He said, you don't have to count every raindrop to know it's pouring right now. And so despite the lack of testing, we think it's rising. Um, cases are rising and probably probably 40 states and deaths and hospitalizations are rising, but it's not anywhere near the Omicron wave in those metrics. Um, and so, as you said, BA5 is now the dominant spread or strain that's spreading and it's the most transmissible yet, but it seems to be causing less severe illness, fewer hospitalizations and prior infection and vaccinations seem not to be as helpful in protecting you. So we're seeing what seems to be a wave of reinfections. Essentially, most Americans have had COVID, whether they know it or not. But um, it's interesting to see this new phenomenon of pragmatism, I think, in our public health community, where there's just a few little islands of um, like COVID tyrants that want to put the mass mandates back in place. They're already there in San Diego schools. There's discussions in Washington and Seattle right now. Um, in LA, it's probably going to come this week and restaurants are bracing uh, for that because they've just been battered out there. But at the same time, there's other public health officials like in Chicago, they're saying, don't let COVID ruin your life. And Dr. Allison Arwadi of the, the Chicago Health Department said, you can't just kind of cry wolf all the time. I want to save the requirements around masking or updating vaccine requirements for when there's a significant change. So we're seeing this shift in attitude, I think. And as a whole, I would say that people are kind of accepting this new endemic phase. So, Corey, back in the fall, we talked about, you know, the public sentiment changing mm -hmm. and, you know, how like public compliance is, a, is actually a public good. Yeah. And so at a certain point, it becomes exhausted and you want to limit the amount of compliance you ask from the public when you can help it because another pandemic is going to happen. And you're going to have to ask people to do this all over again, potentially. And so I think in this case. Uh, what we're what we're seeing is, and and Ricky, I, I I'm interested in your prediction because you spent a lot of time in LA. I'm wondering that if this mask mandate goes into effect in LA uh, this week, as you described, I wonder if people just ignore it. Everybody, including because like the cops were already reticent to yeah. to implement this back the last time this happened. The public doesn't seem to have much of an appetite for it. So what happens if everybody just says they're not going to comply? Yeah, I feel like L.A. is not the place where that's going to happen. I have to be honest. I would like whenever <laughs> I go back and forth between New York and L.A., which are both obviously very progressive cities, New Yorkers have much more of an I don't care attitude. Like, I think we yeah. went through the early wave of the pandemic. It was really, really rough. And then when things started to get better, we were kind of like, okay, we're going to do our thing now. Um, when I went to LA, it was always stricter, always more stringent, even if the caseloads didn't really uh, line up. And so I, my prediction is if the indoor mask mandate comes into place, people are going to follow it. Um, there are little pockets like in different areas, but I would say as a whole, people, people are not so 
They're not big objectors out that way from what I saw. I wonder, Ricky, if some of that has to do with the fact that New Yorkers, just by the way we live our lives here, spend so much time in public spaces compared to other people. And so I think for us, the cost of mandates is as high as anybody because we're in public spaces when we're going to work. We're in public spaces the minute we walk outside of our house. Whereas I think in LA, you know, by and large, like you're living in houses, you're driving in cars, Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. it's just different. And when you're walking down the street, you're not like face to face with as many people. Yeah. Yeah. It's just much more spread out. Yeah. New York, I mean, on the subway, there are still some holdouts that are still wearing masks. I still see it every day. And then there's the vast majority of people aren't wearing masks. What's so interesting about all this to me is at this point, there are still some people out there who have not yet, at least to their knowledge, gotten COVID. 82% of Americans have been infected with it at least once, but there are some out there that still believe that they 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 never got it and i just think that that's interesting the never covid is like how how did you go this i think long? i'm one of them i at least i've never tested or gotten symptoms that i'm aware of oh really yeah. so you're in the never it's possible COVID. but like ricky the key thing ricky said was what did you say ricky you said something like you know people who almost everyone's had it essentially i think it was whether Wall you know Journal you did recently that yeah. Had yeah. headline of like if you're in the no covid club you probably aren't you just didn't realize you had it yeah. which um, I think it's probably pretty accurate, especially with this new strain. It seems to be so transmissible and like relatively undetectable. So you could have just had like a scratchy throat for a day and then maybe that was it. Yeah, people just, I, I'm one of them, like people just aren't testing like they were back in the fall and mm -hmm, the winter. Mm -hmm. I, and I think like the big question for all of us is like, th if this thing isn't going away, should any of these rules be in place? Like LA, this is a trigger, right? Like this is a trigger saying that if you get to a certain amount of cases, in the population per 100,000 people that automatically these certain restrictions are going to go into place. And I'm not sure those make sense anymore. Especially if the disease is not as dangerous, especially if um, a lot of the hospitalizations are people that are there that test positive that are there for something else. The metrics are kind of dated. And I think that like this is a reminder that we need to be pragmatic and keep updating what our, our stats and our measures are for a measure is um, intrusive into people's lives is this. So moving on, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is taking some maybe former friendly fire here in New York as State Senator Jessica Ramos calls her out for not breathing enough of this working class New York air. And that line may sound familiar if you remember this campaign ad from AOC when she first started running for her seat. It's time we acknowledge that not all Democrats are the same. That a Democrat who takes corporate money, profits off foreclosure, doesn't live here, doesn't send his kids to our schools, doesn't drink our water or breathe our air, cannot possibly represent us. Robbie, you're pretty familiar with this crowd. What is the backstory here? Like, what's the deal with this feud? You know, two people at issue here. We all know who AOC is. There's another state senator who represents uh, a district that overlaps with AOC's district. This, the state senator's name is Jessica Ramos. So, you know, full disclosure, I was a, an advisor, Jessica Ramos, uh, on the campaign in 2018. And uh there was somebody who tweeted at AOC on Sunday, who is a medical student, who basically said that they were told by AOC's office that they're, quote, not doing healthcare right now, to which AOC responded to saying, I'm really sorry to hear that this happened. It's not representative of me or my values. And she basically said, DM me, we'll figure this out. Mm -hmm. uh, then Jessica Ramos replied, and this is where like the real story begins. And Ramos said, Maybe if you spent more time in your office with your team, you'd know what goes on. Just saying it would be nice if you breathed our air, which uh, you might, that might sound familiar, listeners. It was, it's from the ad that AOC ran. Uh, and then Ramos added later on, our district offices are on the same floor in the same building. 
She's barely ever present in our community. It's an indisputable fact. And so I find this interesting for a number of reasons. I think there's a there's a backstory between Jessica Ramos and AOC, which is less interesting than this question of who is AOC and how is she managing the demands uh, of fame? And what does it mean for our politics? Because she is a huge figure, right? She has more followers than any other member of Congress. And she's mentioned on the media more than almost any other member of Congress, except possibly Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. And so she's somebody who's really famous. She's somebody who does a lot of events outside of her district. And when she doesn't, she gets criticized for it. Like when she didn't go to the Amazon protests in Staten Island, for example, she both complains about some of the attention she's getting. And I think she has a right to. Some of it is either sexist or threatening. But I think sometimes she complains about stuff that isn't those two things. But then she also... Uh, plays uh, the media attention to the advantage of her issues and like will use her media attention to to drum up support for the causes and candidates that she likes around the country. And we'll travel around the country from all over the country, all the way, including the Rio Grande Valley, to support candidates and causes that she likes. And so I think this is interesting because now she's being called out for having a national profile and spending time outside of her district, which is exactly what she ran on trying to solve with uh, Crowley, who is somebody who is also a national figure. My biggest question about AOC and about this whole uh, conflict here is she's a congresswoman. She works in Washington, D.C. Theoretically, wouldn't she spend most of her time there? Well, she was criticizing Crowley for exactly that. So when she ran against Crowley, Crowley was a creature of D.C., Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So he was a guy who I think he had a house there. And that's what she was saying. I guess he sent his kids there. Mm -hmm. People criticize Josh Hawley for this, for example, right now, people I know in Missouri. And so... Uh, it has become the trend to spend more time in your district than D.C. A lot of people think this is part of the issue with civility in Washington. Yeah. I think it's an overblown argument, but people do spend more time in the districts than they used to, especially because travel is easier than it was you know, back in the day. Yeah. But I don't think the criticism is that she's spending too much time in D.C. I think it's she's spending too much time- Outside of her. Yeah, district. like endorsing candidates in Ohio and Rio Grande Valley or going on this show or that show or doing interviews with major press- Uh, that have nothing to do with the concerns of her district. And I think what Ramos is saying, and this is really a claim that people are going to have to look into through looking at AOC schedules, et cetera. I, I, I do not know the answer to this, is that AOC is not showing up to stuff in her district. Mm -hmm. And I would say that certain activists I know on the ground chimed in and were very measured people like Aaron Carr from the Housing Rights Initiative, who are people who don't like to ruffle feathers with progressives chimed in during this controversy to say, yeah, I've been having a hard time getting in touch with AOC. So there are at least some people I really trust who seem to validate the concern of Ramos. There's rumors that Ramos might have an eye on AOC's seat. So there's that question. But then there's, I mean, it's a very legitimate question of you show up in Congress, you get elected by your constituents, and then all of a sudden you're kind of the center of media attention, which I think is inevitable as like an attractive young woman in Congress. That's just life. And, you know, that's an unfortunate fact that that's the metric that she, I think, initially got a lot of attention on. And then she's very charismatic and she has really bold policies. And she's, I mean, she's an interesting figure in our Congress, just objectively. And so I think, you know, as much as I disagree with a lot of her ambitions, I do appreciate that she's using this platform and moment that she has to effectuate the change that she would like to, to bring attention to the way that a certain faction of people think. Um, But I mean, does she have White House ambitions? Does this mean that Congress is required to kind of stay in their district? I think it it brings up a lot of important questions, but all in all, I think, you know, she, she has a moment, she's capitalizing on it. And 
Um, as long as she's not leaving her constituents totally in the lurch and like not at all paying attention to them. I think, you know, this is kind of the game of politics, to be honest. And this accusation seems to be like the oldest accusation in the book. But there are politicians who've avoided this. So if you go back and read about, for example, like if you read Believer, Axelrod's biography of, of how they managed Obama's image when he, you know, had a similar national rise, right? Now he was older. Mm-hmm. Uh which in many ways means that he probably could have weathered more of a storm, like, because I think her youth, I think, exposes her to even more criticism. Yeah. And the fact that she's a woman, I think these are all real concerns. But I think Obama's advisors were very smart when he won that nomination. They said, for the first couple of years, we're going to not do a lot of national press. Um, and we're going to really focus on being yeah. a good senator for the people of Illinois. Now, that didn't last super long, but that was their th- that was their theory of the case. And I think it was very effective because what he was worried about was, you know, that he would be accused of some of the very things that AOC is being accused of right now, like not being a good representative of your people, not being substantive, letting the fame get to your head, et cetera. And, you know, what's interesting is AOC did an interview with The New Yorker and and she kind of addresses this. So let's listen to this interview. This is from before this controversy, obviously. The third most powerful Democrat in the House of Representatives seems to have been unseated by this radical socialist, like all the buzzwords that the right wing uses now were also completely legitimized by mainstream media the night of the election. Like I never had a chance, you know, like people act as though there are things I can do <laughs> or that there was something I could have done. Um, and there really wasn't. There, there truly wasn't. But then there's also just the basic stuff. I'm young. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. I'm not liberal in a traditional sense. I'm willing to buck against my own party. I'm everything that they need. I, I am the red meat for their base. Well, Ricky, I know you had a certain reaction to this clip. Maybe I'll kick it to you first. I don't know what my face was saying before when we listened to it the first time, but I mean, I think I, I can't believe I'm like defending AOC right now, which is probably the only time I will. But but truly, I think that she was such an outlier in basically every single sense that she just got swamped with the media. And like, I'm not sure if like she doesn't she it didn't seem to me like she had this whole field of advisors saying like let's let's be careful about not leaning into this too much i think she just kind of reacted like a person to it and you know since then obviously she's had time to get her feet on the ground but she did get swamped with this media attention because she's she's different demographically she's different politically she's different in basically every sense and shook up congress and so i mean i think this is inevitably what happens when somebody is novel in the in the field but but, um, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, there's been years now she she can definitely pull herself back and make sure that she's being measured in her approach. But I do think there's something legitimate to the fact that she was presented with this challenge in a unique and pretty unprecedented way. Corey, what was the Met Gala thing that we were covered back in the day? Like she wore a dress that said tax the tax rich or the something, rich, but yeah. then it was. It was designed by somebody who didn't pay their taxes. This is like, I think of her and Musk like as people who really need better people close to them. And I think she's had a lot of turnover recently. Musk has had turnover in his sort of closest ranks for his entire public life. I'm like, just get a couple people around you like that you really listen to. Like when you look at Obama, like mm-hmm. he had Pluff. He had Axelrod. Mm-hmm. I was even looking at the, I was watching, rewatching the Jordan uh, docuseries, uh, um, The Last Dance recently. And, yeah. and it's, I'm struck by how 
humble Jordan was with the people around him, which was first his father, but then Phil Jackson. And even like some of the coaches that got fired, he was always like the kind of person who leaned on people around him for advice. Mm -hmm. And it seems like some of these newest figures are just like, yeah, I got it. I don't like Musk, like I don't need lawyers. I, I can I can learn my way through this, you know? It's really odd you mentioned Musk because I know him and AOC had a little back and forth on uh, Twitter as well. Game recognizes game. Yeah, basically, basically. I think when it comes to AOC's case, you know, it's that old saying either you, you die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Uh, not to say that she's a villain, but she is becoming more of this, you know, standard politician. And I think that that just happens to you once you're in Washington for a while. So hopefully, you know, hopefully she can clean that image up a little bit. But I will say this. I actually live in AOC's district and the air there. It's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> have you run into her have you seen her uh no yeah so maybe there's a <laughs> so maybe there is some maybe there is some merit to what uh, ramos is saying here uh moving on crime is all around us increasing in most major american cities since the onset of the pandemic while politicians disagree on what's causing it researchers are starting to point toward an explanation we haven't heard much about the slow pace of courts during the pandemic it is unprecedented um and huge it's huge it really is it's a problem seen in county courts across the state. Even with jury trials back on the calendar, the backlog is at times crippling. In Rensselaer County, they're still dealing with homicides from three years ago. We have a 2018 case that's going to be tried in October. So I expect it will be years before we can recover from this. In an article published by ProPublica and The Atlantic, reporter Alec McGillis compared and contrasted cities that kept their courts open and those who shut them down. The results were staggering. But Ravi, as COVID wanes and courts are getting back to normal, what should we take away from all this? Well, I first want to say this is a you know, shout out to Alec for just incredible journalism. ProPublica always comes through on this kind of stuff. Uh, as does the Atlantic. And I think this was like a really solid analysis comparing, to me, what stands out is comparing Albuquerque to Wichita. Basically, Albuquerque, a place that was pretty stringent when it came to uh, curtailing the pace of justice during the pandemic, saw a major slowdown in 2020 and 2021. And they they both show macro data showing that trials just weren't happening. And essentially, they were using Zoom for things like civil cases and then like certain hearings in criminal cases. But then obviously the criminal trials often have to be in person in front of juries. And so those were the things that were not happening. And so they showed that in Albuquerque, the city really struggled with this. And in particular, they, they profile one pretty tragic case of a defendant named Leon Casiquito, who spent months in jail with a schizophrenic cellmate. And uh, this cellmate was attacked with a uh, charge with attacking his mother uh, with a 20 pound dumbbell. And then uh, Leon, so the person they were profiling, was then attacked in his cell by this man and killed. Uh, and that was 10 months after he'd been arrested wow. for the original crime of trying to steal a bottle of tequila with a pocket knife. So uh, he died yeah. uh, because of that. And so obviously there are real human consequences to this. So we want faster trials for a lot of reasons, uh, but we want to keep people out of jail as much as possible. Jails are often worse than prisons. We know that in New York City yeah. because of Rikers. I know, Corey, you've talked to people about that. But then they compare it to Wichita, which made different decisions. So Wichita, uh, quickly within months of the, the height of the pandemic, got their courthouses back open. They set up a tent outside. They put plexiglass 
up inside of the courthouse. They started moving things forward and, and things were slower than normal, but they were faster in Wichita than almost any other place in the country. Yeah. And what you saw is that in 2021, where homicide rates were increasing almost everywhere in the country or, or on average around the country, including in, in Albuquerque, as we who was facing these issues we talked about, in Wichita, they went down 9%. And so there's something to the fact that this idea of swift, certain, and fair justice, which is like a term of art in, in uh, criminal justice, the idea that it's the speed of consequences, not necessarily the severity of consequences, can actually deter crime. There were a whole slew of failures. I mean, uh, certainly in retrospect, and I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but the fact that courts weren't prosecuting swiftly, there were relaxed bail reforms, um, there were cops pulling back, there were releases from prisons just entirely, which was kind of just this sense that whatever whatever you did during the pandemic might not actually in the end result in consequences, I think really has just shaken our cities at a fundamental level, not to mention the the circus of Zoom court, which I don't know if you guys remember that like viral video of the the judge or the lawyer that showed up as a cat. We're trying to we're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's I'm here live. It's not. I'm not a cat. The whole thing was yeah. such a, a joke and so bizarre. And if you're actually caught up in the justice system, how how crappy is it to see that that is really the level of of how your case and your life and your your prosecution is taken. But um, I think that there's an interesting like conservative response to this lack of justice, that, in my opinion, where they say that they want harder justice, they want more severe consequences. And I don't think that's the answer. I think the swift, certain and fair situation where where it's proportionate, but you know that it's going to happen is a much better situation. And even the DOJ itself has unilaterally come down and said that um, increasing the severity of punishment does little to deter crime. Well, there's a lot of research to suggest what happens when the courts slow down the justice process. A lot of times prosecutors are confronted with so many cases that they decide to just not pursue certain cases that aren't worth it. So that means more people are basically their, their stuff isn't even going to trial. Uh, victims uh, and witnesses become less willing to testify as time goes by because they start to just either forget about what happened or it's not as important to them anymore. And also, we got to remember that during COVID, a lot of people were just let out early for crimes because of the outbreaks that were happening in prisons. Around 1,500 Rikers inmates were released in early 2020 due to COVID safety factors. Uh, and of those 1,500 people released, about 13% of them were rearrested. So there was a higher recidivism rate among a lot of these people who were who were basically being released because of the pandemic. Because I don't think that people were being very selective about who they were releasing. It was kind of like, let's get these people out just because of a, a numbers game, you know? You also had cops charging fewer crimes also in, in response to Floyd and the Floyd. aftermath. Yep. So you had that plus the fact that people are being convicted and, and brought to trial Just less. A perfect storm. And then you have you have certain, Ricky, you were talking about people get it with the bail reforms, certain people being let out and as as are you, Corey, but then there are certain cases like this, this man that I just talked about mm -hmm. who certain jurisdictions like Albuquerque were keeping people detained during this period of time at a time when you were seeing major vacancies in uh, jailhouse staff. So they had a 30% vacancy of officers within their jails. So this was a huge problem where you're putting people in these places like in, in that particular incident, there's a lot of evidence that this man who is stuck in the cell 
was trying to ask for help and couldn't find yeah. anybody. Yeah. And so it's it's pretty tragic. I think, you know, when we take a step back here, there are still many courthouses around the country that are facing this issue. So they talk about Oakland, which mm-hmm. currently has a backlog of 4,700 felony cases and 6,000 misdemeanors. And the DA explicitly on the record in this case, um, in this article, talks about how she believes that these backlogs are leading to an increase in crime in Oakland, which is seeing a pretty big spike. Yeah, and I think this is all just so unfortunate that obviously the pandemic catalyzed a lot of these issues, but then at the same time we had this radical experiment of what happens if we have these super progressive DAs that kind of take the attitude that's in line with not prosecuting things generally. And like in some cities, you could legally shoplift as long as you didn't hit a certain threshold and stuff. And so I think we just had an all over feeling of societal decay that is continuing despite the fact that some cities are are reducing their backlogs and stuff like even just the the spectacle in New York City of the bodega stabbing that we covered recently of people feeling like justice is not being served or justice is being served in in a sort of asymmetrical way i think it just all feeds into this sentiment that you know crime crime is allowable or crime is you can evade consequences. And it's I I think this is really a moment where all in all, holistically, our system needs to reform to prosecute the right things at the right time and as few instances as possible, but certain swift and fair in those instances. You know, one thing that stands out to me is just that there's two systems of justice here. Now, the average uh, time to disposition of a felony case in this country is 256 days, which to me feels like it's in it's near violation of the Sixth Amendment yeah. right to a mm-hmm. speedy trial. Yeah. Uh, but then you look at what certain what happens to other people in in our system, like in our civil system, and we've talked about the Elon Musk civil case in Delaware. Uh, his trial date is set for October. Now this is a civil case. Yeah. But you know, tons of resources involved here. If a ruling is handed down there, which is probably likely, that will be at most 120 days from yeah. when the suit is filed. So we've shown as a society that we can move things relatively fast. Now you can now you know some of these cases, like felony cases, you need to impanel a jury and all that, but that doesn't take that much longer. You know, it doesn't take double to do that. You know, and so I think like we need to get things faster. And I think I, Ricky, I agree with you. I think uh, before we start talking about handing down more consequences, let's just get. Let's get there faster and see if that can deter people more from committing these crimes. So moving on, Failure to Launch isn't just the title of a 2006 dud of a rom-com starring a man I once suggested should run for president. It's also the title of a recent Credit Karma survey that found that nearly 30% of Gen Z is living at home with no plans to leave anytime soon. These are some striking numbers. Ricky, uh, what do you have to say on behalf of your generation? You know, honestly, like, I've basically made a career out of saying that we're coddled, but I'm going to go back on this one and say that I all the people who are saying that this 30 percent figure is is so shocking and these are failure to launch kids. I don't agree. I think the fact that only 30 percent of 18 to 25 year olds are living at home right now is actually kind of a victory. It's down from like half recently. And because the cost of living is going up, these are 18 to 25 year olds. So essentially All of them have either graduated college or started a career in a pandemic, which is super difficult to do when you're trying to do kind of more menial, potentially in-person jobs. Um, And then at the same time, the cost of living is going up at unprecedented levels. So I think the fact that 70% of kids in this demographic have actually gotten out of the house, even if they're spending a lot of their income on housing, 
is impressive considering the circumstances that they've been uh, handed. But to give some numbers to all of this, it's 30% of Gen Z, 18 to 25, much more predominant in males than females, which is interesting. 32% are spending half of their income on housing. 28% feel that they're unable to save money. And these kids right now don't have any immediate plans to leave. Um, But you know, the pandemic happened, rent rose by 11.3% annually, which is the highest on record. And the cost of living is their highest reported concern. So I think actually this is not a failure to launch. I think this is kind of impressive, to be honest. I have to agree with you, Ricky. I was looking at some of the data because I wanted to compare it to my generation of millennials. And back in 2012, according to the uh, Pew Research Center, 36% of 18 to 31 year olds were living at home. Now, obviously, that's a little bit of a bigger group because 18 to 31. But still, 36% compared to just 30% of Gen Z now. I think I, I agree with you, Ricky. I'm surprised it's not a much higher number of Gen yeah. Z people living at home. But I think in some cities, this is more severe than others. I was yeah. looking at staggering data. Austin, Texas, 108% increase in rent year over year. So 10 times the national average. New York over here, it's 41%. We were just talking about this the other day in the office. You know, There's definitely certain cities where it just is impossible unless yeah. you yeah. come from a lot of money. And even in that case, like save your money, you know, spend a couple extra years at home, save your money if you can commute to work. And just don't live in giant cities too. You could just go to small towns and where things are a little bit more affordable, I mean, less opportunities, but you know, that's a factor there as well. Well, also they have this unprecedented challenge because cities are for better or for worse where people go to try to get their start or at least try things. And that's more difficult than it's ever been. But also the 30% is especially staggering to me because we're the first generation to have the option to do the work from home thing. So we might not even have to move for work anyways, and still 70% of us have. And if you actually look at the older data, we're cutting off at 25, just because that's like the Gen Z point in this poll. But this 30% kind of more or less holds up all the way up into younger or younger millennials and their later, later 20s, early 30s. And so, you know, those are people who had even more time to get their feet on the ground who are who are living at home at a similar rate as the younger people who didn't. So that's, to me, even more data that I'm like, we we did pretty well with this stat. I would like to see some data on the number of people who tried to move out and then moved back in with their parents. Because in my personal opinion, if you move out of your house, but then when you move back in, you're living in a different room than the room <laughs> you grew up in. I feel that's different. <laughs> like if you're in the basement, you didn't grow up in the basement, you know? So I feel like <laughs> that's different. Not, right? It also has a different feel. I feel like if, it's, if you return in that way, I think it's interpreted differently than yeah. if you never left in the first place. It's like on the Fresh Prince, when Will and Carlton came back, they went to the pool house. They didn't go back to their regular I mean, rooms. I would live there now. <laughs> Well, good for Gen Z for only being at 30% because my generation was a lot worse. The House Select Committee investigating January 6th wrapped up its first series of public hearings last week. Over the span of eight televised hearings, the committee strived to make the case that Trump initiated the riot, propagated baseless claims of fraud and made deliberate attempts to overturn the election. But whether the committee was successful in its two aims, convincing voters that Trump should be disqualified from running for office again and pushing the Justice Department to pursue a more urgent investigation, that's still up for debate. Now, Ravi, what were some of your initial takes as this committee was wrapping things up? Yeah, I start by saying that I think that there's a moral imperative to do this regardless of the political and legal impact of it. I think this was literally an attack on their very place of work. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to look into it. I think when it comes to the politics of it, 
uh, you know, the data now seems to suggest that most people are, were following it in some way. So four to five Democrats and a majority of independents reported following the hearings. Uh, fewer Republicans, but still 44%, which is a little higher than I would have expected. And I think people were following it. I think people were by and large appalled by what they learned. I think the bigger question here is going to be the legal consequences of this. And I think that's a much closer call. I think there's two different standards here. There's can they get an indictment, which mm -hmm. is a low bar. You know, the, the saying is you can indict a ham, ham sandwich, you know. Uh, but the Justice Department has pretty stringent guidelines. And this is what their guidelines say. It says prosecutors should commence or recommend federal prosecution if they believe they can get a conviction at trial based on admissible evidence. And there are a couple other factors. They're basically saying you really want to believe you can get a conviction if you're going to bring charges. And I think that there's a fierce debate going on. I have no inside information, but my sense is there's got to be a fierce debate going on within the Justice Department uh, about whether to bring charges at all. I want to talk a little bit about what those charges could possibly be, because that is the biggest thing. What crimes has Trump possibly broken here with January 6th? One of the first things is seditious conspiracy. Now, this is something that people uh, and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys have been charged with. Seditious conspiracy basically means you're agreeing with people to use force or violence to prevent the law from being carried out. Charging Trump with that would be a little difficult because then you'd have to directly connect him to the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, which there doesn't seem to be a real direct connection. There's definitely some people that were associated with both sides, with Trump and these individuals. But you'd have to basically get Trump in a room with these people, conspiring with them, which probably never happened. Never say never, but probably didn't happen. There's also a crime called conspiracy to defraud the United States. This one's very interesting because this would deal with basically the lies that Trump was operating off of based off of January 6th. Now, when you hear defraud the United States, it might sound financial. But actually, there was a, a, an opinion from William Howard Taft, who was president, but was also a Supreme Court justice, a chief justice of Supreme Court. And he said that conspiracy to defraud the United States also means to interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful governmental functions by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at the least by dishonest means. That sounds dangerously close to what Trump did as far as using lies to try to overturn the election. Uh, and another possible crime he could be charged with is conspiracy to disrupt a congressional or federal proceeding. Uh, and of course, that would mean he would have to have done an action that disrupted that proceeding. And you would also have to prove corrupt intent. You have to prove that he was acting in a way where he knew there was malice involved. And I, I, you know, I believe that continuing to push these lies about the election when he was told by legal experts and his own, uh, you know, attorney general that these that, that, that there was no widespread voter fraud. And also this also involves the Mike Pence telling Mike Pence to prevent the certification, even though he was told several times Pence didn't have the power to do that. Yeah, to violate the Electoral Count Act. I, I think that the, the Taft standard is a little vague for me in the sense that like the idea that a government official using deceit to obstruct the governmental functions, probably hundreds of people in Washington <laughs> would be charged with that crime. As much as I would love to see, you know, Trump be held accountable for that. But it's deceit, crap, and trickery. The trickery, The yes, trickery still. part is the one that I, is the throw, one I'm, I'm Throw Mitch McConnell at. and Schumer in jail then. <laughs> but I think that the obstruction of Congress and conspiracy to defraud, there is some basis for this, especially even leading up, like through the hearings when there's, yeah. there's at least suggestions that he's witness tampering. Oh, right. yes, that's another So to me, that's where he starts to get himself into some trouble. Do I know for sure? I don't know. Uh, and I think that most legal experts I've seen think that it's a pretty close call. And I think that as much as I really want Trump to be held accountable for this, I think we have to be careful when you have a Justice Department that is run by one political party yes. that it would be prosecuting uh, the person they beat in the previous election who could be running against them again. Like, I really want to see Trump held accountable for this. 
but I, I think we should be really careful about the standard that we set. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if the Department of Justice takes up any of the information that's coming to light here, because as of now, there's no cross-examination. Like, this is not a court of law. This is just a hearing. And I think it's important to remember that. That doesn't mean that that's not worth listening to. But at the moment, I think it'll, what what really is interesting to me is where this will take us and where these revelations will take us. I, I think like to me, like once again, this is less about the politics right now. You know, 2024 is a ways off than really just getting to the bottom of the record here about what happened and let the American people do what they will with that. I think it's very early to say what any of the political impact of any of this is going to be uh, because there isn't there hasn't been a Republican primary yet. There hasn't been a general election yet. There haven't been charges uh, filed or even a, an announcement of, a you know, you know, declining of charges, which might not happen because the Department of Justice often doesn't comment in that way, except if it's Hillary Clinton. Uh, <laughs> so I think that, you know, in this case, we may never know what happens within the Department of Justice with these charges. But as we've covered, there are all sorts of cases going on involving Trump. We've been critical of some. We've been supportive of others. At least I have been. There's so much legal activity going on with Trump that I, I suspect that sometime in the next six months, some shoe is going to drop and the politics is going to be quickly going to become about that. He is the Teflon Don, though. He seems to <laughs> evade all legal ramifications for his actions. It seems like it, you know, but we'll, we'll see what, what becomes of the Jan 6 hearings. All right, before we go today, Ravi, I know you wanted to respond to a comment we got from a listener on one of the segments we played last week. This is from Rico Status on our Instagram commenting about the segment, a clip from the segment we did about Arizona teachers. And he says, uh, quote, uh, some pushback because the subject matter of elementary schools isn't advanced does not mean the teaching strategies aren't and can't be. Training is about meeting the needs of a diverse population of students, not mastering high school level math. If we adopted the philosophy that elementary teachers do not need formal training, then no one will have an incentive to go to college to become an elementary teacher. And so uh, there was a little bit more here, but you know, my sense to this is I, I totally get it. And I think they might've been responding to particularly the clip and not the whole segment. And one thing I'll say is like in the segment, I talked about how like I would love for our colleges to do a better job of training people to be teachers, including elementary teachers. I think my point was right now they're not. And so I think when you have a teacher shortage requiring people to go to college for training that doesn't necessarily make them better teachers, to me, is not something I would prioritize right now. And often we're also incentivizing and requiring people to take on significant debt to go into low paying jobs to do those jobs, which in some ways also deters them. So if you're forcing people to go to college, they may graduate and be like, wow, I got all this money now um, that I owe the government and to banks. I wanted to be a teacher, but I'm not going to be a teacher anymore now because I got to pay this stuff off. And so I, I definitely understand Rico's sentiment, but I'm kind of with him that I just wish the colleges would train people better to be teachers. And if they were, they were cheaper and train people better, I would be all for it. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for watching and listening today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. And we will see you guys next time.